Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Getting is Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, September 5th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and once again we have Truthvids here to discuss the next few points in his 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part six of that series. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Good morning, Truthvids. How are we? Great, thanks. All going well? Uh, yes, yeah, so um, these proofs, as we go over them, they're, they're perhaps often kind of ones that people would just gloss over and maybe not pay too much attention as they're not as fantastic and glorious as some of the early ones we went on. But they're very important. Uh, you know, the idea that Israel would be a great agriculture nation, that they'd rule the seas and have islands and colonies everywhere. And a more practical one that virtually every invention is white and that ultimately Israel in the end times would be overrun with foreign aliens. You can kind of put them all together and very clearly you can make out a picture of what race today would be the white Europeans. Right, Bill? Well, well right. I mean, if, if you had these promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in 1800 B.C., that their descendants would become many nations. First, you can't imagine that those nations existed when those promises were made. So you have to look for nations that arose in history at a subsequent time. And without... Um, it, it's... Nations that arose in history at a subsequent time and without any prior proofs of existence, but that wouldn't happen immediately. That would be a historic process which would take many centuries to unfold. I mean, people don't become families even, don't become nations in a very short time. It takes centuries to do that. And if we want to see the fulfillment of these prop prophecies, then we have to really study ancient history in order to examine just how this could have happened. And, and the mainstream churches, they really turn this on their head because they think that many nations became Abraham's seed when Jesus went out and told the apostles to preach to the whole world. And that's not what the apostles had taught. The apostles brought a gospel to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, to the 12 tribes of Israel. They were bringing the gospel to many nations which came from Abraham's seed. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 5, that it would be according to the promise, thus thy seed will be. That's how the apostles saw it. And if Christians don't see it that way, then they are not following the apostles of Christ. They shouldn't even deserve to be called Christians. Many nations yeah, then, did not become Abraham's seed. Abraham's seed became many nations, and Christian identity explains the historical process which unfolded over many centuries that demonstrates that that happened. I'm sorry. 
That's okay. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, the whole concept of um, a drought or a famine or, you know, a plague where there's no food on the table. It's something that's completely foreign to us, right, for, for easily over a century. I know uh, certain countries in World War II, uh, you know, had some difficulty, but very quickly the civilization sprang back up. But people just expect to go to a supermarket and every shelf is full. I mean, now and then you might have one fruit that's sold out. But I mean, very quickly, it's, it's always there. That's what we expect. And that is because we built these vast farmlands and, you know, agriculture. Uh, we have enormous amounts of cattle and enormous wealth. And that's why we've been able to do this. And, you know, hitting on the fact that we've sailed across all the world and set up colonies everywhere. The fact that you can get, you know, bananas from this country, certain meats from another, it's all a white construct, all this trading and this vast abundant civilization. And it's only, you know, in the last few decades with treachery from the Jews that they've industrialized the non-white nations. And that's the reason that, um, you know, a lot of our local farmers have been put out of business. Uh, we used to, every white nation had enough food to support their own nation. And that's only in white nations. And only now because of all this undercutting and not just the farmers, but a lot of our local businesses have gone out of you know, out of business because they're they're essentially importing from China, etc. But I mean, it's very clear that only white nations have ever achieved this ever in history, right? Well, well, right. But they've set up a very artificial economy where we become dependent on these countries overseas, and our local industries suffer for it, and and are put out of business by it. It it's I mean. We grow enough food in each of our own states, counties, districts to feed ourselves, and the world economy has become very contrived and artificial, this globalist economy. We do not need tomatoes from Mexico or garlic from China. It, it's absurd. The Chinese grow garlic and sell it here and undercut that they flood the markets, they undercut our own garlic producers and put them out of business, and then the Chinese control the market. That's how it's being done. That's just one example. It, it's been happening for 50 years now. It's been happening, well, with China, it's been happening since the 80s, after the trade with China was opened up by Reagan. That's um, probably a, a discussion for later on this evening, or this morning, I should say, in reality, right? While by necessity, we have had to repeat ourselves at times in an endeavor to provide the full evidence for each individual point or proof, we hope to round out the top 20 on the list this evening with proofs 16 through 20. Doing this, we are going to also focus on the many blessings of Jacob and Moses, which they had made to the 12 tribes before their deaths. But while we may not recount them all in detail, we will present some significant promises. We will present some of those. We have already discussed the initial promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their seed would be multitudinous, that nations and kings would come out of their loins 
and that in that manner they would inherit the Adamic world, all of which was fulfilled by the time of Christ. But that was an ongoing process which took many centuries to fulfill, and it was still developing in the time of Christ. In Genesis chapters 48 and 49, Jacob begins to reiterate those promises and gives additional blessings as he passes the promises onto his 12 sons. Later, Moses blesses the tribes in his own words, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 33. First, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, but he lost the double share of the inheritance, as well as other privileges of the firstborn son when he violated his father's concubine. So Jacob ordered a double portion. The oldest son in Hebrew custom received a double portion of the inheritance so that if you had three sons, you split your estate four ways and your oldest son got two portions and the other two sons would only get a quarter. That's basically how that worked. So Reuben lost that. And Jacob awarded the double portion to Joseph instead, while Judah was named the family ruler. And later, after Jacob's death, Yahweh himself made Levi the family priest. All those offices, the, the, the situation, that the circumstance of being the next patriarch would fall on the oldest son. And, and all of those are privileges and honors that were conferred on the oldest son or the oldest living male. So Reuben lost that and Jacob divided them, that they were divided. The priesthood isn't mentioned in Genesis chapter 49, but it later was chosen by Yahweh to fall to Levi and Simeon was passed over. So Jacob divided the scepter and the double portion among his surviving sons, those whom he favored. But the double portion was divided not to Joseph himself. Rather, Jacob gave it over to each of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So therefore, in Genesis chapter 48, Jacob again departed from custom by blessing the younger of them, beyond the elder, and, and we read from verse 17, and when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, because Ephraim was the younger, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head, and Joseph said unto his father, not so, my father, for this is the firstborn, put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh, the younger before the elder. And Israel, or Jacob, said unto Joseph, 
Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. If we accept our scriptures as the entire history of the 12 tribes which follows is concerned only with the events of the Exodus and the history of Israel in Palestine, we must know that somehow this was fulfilled and the words of the apostles as they brought the gospel to the 12 tribes scattered abroad show how they were fulfilled. We only have to examine the intervening history to see the details. The sons of Joseph alone were to become a great nation and a company of nations, things which had certainly never befallen the Jews. When have the Jews ever become either of those? The people that we know as Jews who went into their diaspora or diaspora, who were scattered after 70 AD. When did they ever? They've been nothing but parasites on nations and corruptors of other nations. They've never become a great nation and a company of nations. Ultimately, all 12 tribes would inherit blessings, which are described in Genesis chapter 49 and Deuteronomy chapter 33, although they would not all be blessed in that same manner. So with this background, we should proceed to the next of TruthVid's 100 Proofs, as there were many indications and promises in Scripture that the children of Israel would transform deserts into thriving nations. Right, and that's something that we've done in abundance, right? Wherever we went, no matter what uh, condition or harsh climate, we've, whether it's hot or cold, we've always managed to do it. And um, the natives have lived there for thousands of years with abundant resources. And we've just in a matter of um, a century or two century, we've essentially turned it into a paradise, right? Whether it's, um, you know, Canada, America, North or South, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, all the same. We've always managed to do it and created a thriving civilization. Well, well absolutely. And, and okay, the Jepetites in Athens, they had a, a spectacular civilization at, at one time. And the Elamites, the Persians also did, and Mitzrayim or, or Egypt also did. All of them also fell apart because of intra-racial war or empire building and the resulting mongrelization. What, what killed the Athenians most, I believe, was their wars with the Spartans and the Persians. And it just wasn't meant to be anyway for them to persist because they were not Israel. So even though they were wonderful civilizations, they didn't last, and they didn't really spawn child civilizations that replaced them. They were replaced by other tribes. They were eclipsed by other tribes, and, and all of Europe was ultimately eclipsed by the Germanic tribes that had come out of the Assyrian captivities of the Israelites. They were the 
recipients, primary recipients of these promises. And there were others, the Phoenician settlers that came from Israel and, and the Romans themselves. We probably have Romans today among us in Northern Europe and Central Europe. I, I mean, the Romans had colonies all over Europe. And, and when the Roman Empire fell, those people didn't disappear. They must have been blended into the local populations in one way or another, ultimately. But the, but the Germanic tribes were the, they were the subject to the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2, which would destroy the Roman Empire, and they did, and they ultimately supplanted the European civilization. When they all came to Christianity, then did Germany and, and Northern Europe undergo a sort of renaissance? And, and I don't mean to refer to the Jewish renaissance of the 1500s, but Germany had started to become a great kingdom under Otto I, the Saxon king. That, that's my opinion. That, that's when Germany really started to turn around. And, and you could say Charlemagne precipitated that, and he did. But Charlemagne was a Frank, so, and, and only probably about 200 years ahead of Otto I. When Charlemagne converted the Saxons, they were pagan barbarians. So when they were Christianized, then they really started to thrive, in my opinion, and, and become a powerful nation in their own right. And that happened to every European nation, right? Uh, you know, the Nordic countries, uh, the Saxons in England, um, you know, Poland at one time was incredibly powerful. And, and all those, um, you know, even Russia, once they got it all together and started Christianizing, I know it was all different districts and nations, but they started to homogenize. It was Christianity and when they got this explosion of civilization suddenly. So that they they begin this period of colonization and expansion because of their explosion of civilization. That Now, I understand that a lot of that was led by the Jesuits who had what we would consider nefarious intentions, right? They wanted to convert every beast to Christianity in the name of the Catholic Church in order to expand Roman Catholic power. But the... The Saxon settlements, the English settlements, that they were simply looking to improve upon the, the living space and resources of their own race. When, when um, Benjamin Franklin was writing before the American Revolution, in the earlier, in the mid, I should say, 1700s, the mid-18th century, he imagined, he was imagining how many Anglo-Saxons could fill the American continent and extrapolating the numbers to see how many decades it would take for the number of Englishmen in the Americas to outnumber the number of Anglo-Saxons in Europe so, or, or in Britain. So he, that, that was their dream was to build a society 
to, to extend their British society or English society and, and build it everywhere and build the world up with their own race. It, it, was, it, it was the Jewish money powers in England that, that had changed all that, that had their own agenda. The Jewish mercantile class, the Rothschilds and other such families, that they had their own agenda. And, and wanted to instead civilize the savages. Common men like Benjamin Franklin would have no part of that. So that's just one example of the different attitudes towards colonization. And, and in the end, the bankers won. But it wasn't like that. That was not the um, objectives of many men of the period who, who just wanted to expand their own race. And wherever they went, what we have, um, Australia is a, is a hellhole. It's a desert. <laughs> and they built a marvelous nation there. South Africa, the Boers in South Africa. And North America is not hospitable, not in, not in the upper plains, in the upper plains states, North Dakota, um, Minnesota, South Dakota, Montana, the climate is awful. It's winter for six months, seven months a year. It's extremely cold, 30 degrees below zero in the dead of winter. Who would want to live there? Nobody in their right minds. But they, German and, and English farmers came and built those states in, into um, productive agricultural economies. And... and no other race could do that where they are today, where they've been for 50,000 years. They can't do that. Africa had no real agriculture or, or agricultural produce until white settled South Africa and Rhodesia and the Congo and other areas and, and started to build one. So wherever our race was went, even Siberia, Northern Russia, Greenland, we have created viable civilizations. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I was just going to say um, that initial bit's the hardest part, right? When you move into a wilderness, as you'd say, where it's all overgrown and you have to clear it all and cut it all down and then level the plain and uh, sow the seeds, make sure the soil's fertile. You know, that's, that's backbreaking work. And it takes enormous efforts. And uh, that was all done for like the Africans. And um, once you build the farms, it's a little bit easier. You know, you reap the uh, crops, you re-fertilize it and just make sure it's watered and you clear, you know, any pests and insects. But that's the easy bit is that initial bit that's really hard. And that was all left to these countries like Africa. You know, all the fields were all functioning. They had all machineries and they couldn't do it even with everything left for them, right? Well, well right. And, and okay, most, that the American colonies really didn't start to grow into anything significant until perhaps the 1640s, 1650s. And, and that was the time of Cromwell in England. What the glorious revolution that really wasn't glorious at all, right? Well, well, anyway, 
when the American colonies started to grow, they had more and more resistance from the savage Native Indians. In George Washington's young career, when he was a young officer, he was fighting Indian wars in Pennsylvania. <laughs> in Indiana was called Indiana because they had pushed the Indians into Indiana out of Ohio. It, it, it was that close to our founding of the United States of America that we were still fighting with the Indians and still in, in, in the Appalachian Mountains. We, we hadn't even expanded into the Midwest yet in any significant numbers. Uh, if you look at the opening, the discovery of the Cumberland Gap, the opening of um, Tennessee and Kentucky, that all happened during the late 17 and early 1800s when, when we began to expand beyond those original 13 colonies. And within 100 years, settlers, white settlers were making it all the way to California and Oregon from that time and, and settling there in large numbers in not only inhospitable territory, I mean, as far as the climate was concerned, the cold they had to fight, they had none of our modern conveniences, and they also had these savages to resist or, or to, consist, to, to constantly fight with so that their settlements could survive because the Indians were trying to kill them all. So they did that in 100 years. They settled this continent, basically, from the time it began to expand. And they did it with wagons and, and crude utensils and tools. that They didn't have any of the conveniences we have today. So in, in a short time, we, our race, turned this American continent into a civilized society which operated under the rule of law and and for the most part right so so who else has ever done that and and look at yeah. once we established it look at everything we've developed and invented once we established it and I was just gonna say Australia um you know is all convicts right it was all meant to be bad people you know prisoners who who had uh, broken a law, but when they did went there, they were still able to do it, right? Still able to build a thriving civilization. Right. So it's clearly an ethnic racial thing. You know, if, if even you can empty our prisons, send them somewhere and they'll build this vast civilization, it just shows you, right? Right. There's no doubt that and anybody that has any common sense whatsoever should be able to see that Civilization is a racial construct. It's not the other way around. Civilization is a result of the, the race that has the ability to create it. And when we go to Africa or to the jungles of South America or, or Southeast Asia, we see the civilization that these aboriginal people in those areas, the Negro, the, the, the Oriental, the, the South American Indian, if I have to be nice. Well, well, we see the extent of their ability in the civilization that they create for themselves. And the true black Africans who have not 
come into contact or, or been civilized and educated by white Europeans. The true black Africans are sitting in the mud using urine from mosquito repellent and eating mosquito cakes that they cook on hot rocks. That's how they subsist. And that's the extent yep. of their ability. I've actually got a quote on that. Uh, this, this, this was just um, like a brief quote on somebody who saw black civilization for, for in their own eyes, right? Not the modern Hollywood depiction where you watch a film and, or you watch sports and there's sports stars and all that. Um, so it's throughout 6,000 years of recorded history, the black African Negro has invented nothing not a written language, so they can't even speak or write or have an alphabet. It was, um, you know, whites who went over there out of the kindness of their heart and listened to them and tried to form a language out of the noises they made and did it all for them. They haven't weaved cloth, so they don't even wear clothes. They just run around naked. They don't have a calendar. They don't even know. So what day of the week it is? Is it morning? Is it three o'clock? Is it six? Is it summer? Is it autumn? They don't have any concept like that. Uh, they haven't got a plow, a road, a bridge. So, you know, they don't build anything. They don't farm. They don't have a railway, a ship, even a system of measurement or even the wheel. He is not known to have either ever cultivated a single crop or domesticated a single animal for his own use, although many powerful and doctile beasts are abound around him. You know, so that there is potential, you know, the South Africans were able to do it, uh, tame all these animals, build farmlands, um, get cattle together. He had, his only known means of transporting goods was on the top of his hard very head for shelter. He never progressed beyond the common mud hut the construction of which a beaver or muskrat is capable. And uh, that's the end of the quote. Well, well, that's absolutely true. They've never domesticated animals. They, they've never been husbandmen. They've never engaged in, in any serious agriculture. They barely subsist, and they have no skill to do much better than that. Where Moses blessed the tribes of Israel, he blessed them individually, and he also blessed them, all of them, collectively. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 33, Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop down dew. This was never fulfilled in Palestine. And because Israel never dwelt in safety alone in Palestine, they always had the Canaanite problem. This was never fulfilled in Palestine. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, where Samuel is speaking to David, fully indicates that it would be fulfilled elsewhere. Where you read in... in um, I'm going to take another short digression. I'm sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. It says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So the land which Yahweh God really had in mind for the children of Israel was not 
truly the land of Canaan. There must have been other land because if the balance of the people are set according to the number of the children of Israel, well, all of the land in Canaan, in Mesopotamia, in Anatolia, in Egypt, and Ethiopia, in the Near East, which we would consider Persia, and in the coasts of southern Europe, where you had the Jepethi tribes, all of the land had already been apportioned to other tribes of the sons of Noah. So how would the balance of the people set according to the number of the children of Israel? When the children of Israel went to Canaan, I'm sorry, that wasn't their permanent settlement. 2 Samuel chapter 10, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 10 proves that, that Palestine was never their permanent settlement as God intended it. You must find those Israelite nations in lands that had not been apportioned to the other tribes, to the other sons of Noah. And that is actually in the far west and north of Europe. That's where it has to be because that's where the Israelites were sent in after their Assyrian captivity. That's where we find them after their Assyrian captivity. So this fulfillment of prophecy even though it, fill, it, it works out in ways that we really don't expect, the prophecies are still fulfilled. They've been fulfilled. The last 25 chapters of Isaiah are instrumental in understanding this because they concern the captivity of Israel. What is to become of them in, in their captivity? And how Yahweh God will be with them in spite of his punishing them. And this begins in Isaiah chapter 41, where it starts by saying, keep silence before me, O islands. Now, now that word is problematical because it doesn't really mean an island in the sea. It, it refers to coastlands. And let the people renew their strength and let them come near. Then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. And, and that points to a future reconciliation with, with Yahweh God because they had been taken into captivity already when Isaiah wrote these chapters. And, and then a little further on from verse 16, thou shalt fan them, speaking about the children of Israel, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them but they're not lost because then it says, and thou shalt rejoice in Yahweh and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue fails for thirst, I, Yahweh, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open the rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shita tree, and the myrtle, and the oil tree. This is really using poetic allegory to describe the fact that the children of Israel would once again become a society, a godly society, in the wilderness to which they were driven. And 
in the time of Isaiah, everything north of the Caucasus Mountains was a wilderness. Everything north of the Black Sea and the Danube River, even according to Herodotus in 450 BC, was a wilderness. So Yahweh says that he is doing this in verse 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. When the apostles brought the gospel to the scattered tribes of Israel, to the 12 tribes, when, Christ, when Europe became Christian, and it was a process, but when that happened, if they were truly Catholics, if they were taught the gospel correctly, they would have taught that their very existence was a fulfillment of this prophecy. Likewise, the first half of Isaiah chapter 58 is a description of their sins and a summons to return to righteousness that echoes many of the messianic prophecies of Isaiah, which, which Christ had cited in reference to himself from those same chapters. And we read in the later half of the chapter that if they do that, and Yahweh shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places, the old desolate places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of Yahweh, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in Yahweh, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. And as soon as those European tribes all became Christian, they went on to fulfill this destiny. That the poetic image of, of being the restorer of past to dwell in, of building civilizations and establishing the rule of law over those civilizations so that they could live as Christians in, in relative harmony. And, and I know we've always had war, and, and that's a whole nother thread of prophecy as well. And war was always going to be inevitable because we were always competing with one another. And there were always nefarious forces behind that which urged us to do such things to one another. So that, that's the history of the Middle Ages. And those Jews, as well as the sins of men and the sinfulness and greediness of men, or the competition with the Pope and the Popes of Rome seeking to control Europe, pitting kingdom against kingdom, instigating one kingdom against another. Those wars, I mean, there are underlying causes for them 
that are not Christian in origin. Yeah, and if um, Yahweh said we'd be so abundant and uh, he'd always listen to us, you know, hear our cries and make sure that, you know, we're well looked after, well, what about all these other non-white nations who are starving and, you know, can barely feed themselves? Why isn't he listening to them? It's obvious we must be Israel, the children of Israel with the promises, and they must not be, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, we have made fountains in the desert. The, the white Christians of Europe discovered ways to find and pump underground aquifers when otherwise there was no water. And they developed other forms of irrigation, which allowed them to cultivate vast tracts of land, which was otherwise desert, and which, under the feet of the savages that they, that they pushed out of the way, had been desert for centuries and centuries. And, and wherever they went, no matter the challenges, they were able to build utopias and thrive in hostile environments. So who are the people of God? Yeah, and um, also if you just step back a sec and just consider that, um, you know, Yahweh created the whole world for the Adamic race, right? I mean, all these animals, and we were to master them and tame them. What race today achieves that? What you know, I mean, if you look at horses, they're clearly designed so we can ride them, you know, cows so that we can live off the milk. Dogs are our best friends, you know, etc. There's an endless amount, but it's clearly us to, uh, that have mastered these animals and rule over them, the white Adamic race. And the same with all the um, plants and crops, you know, we're able to tame it. We clearly control it all as we were, uh, you know, are commissioned by God, right? That's what he said the Adam should do. That was the commandment, rule over the uh, creation, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, the aboriginals of, of the African coast, that they would sit and, and, and this is in, in the Northern Pacific also. In, in fact, in Alaska, there's actually um, shelters that natives built out of the bones of these large whales and other large mammals. But they, they can't go out and catch these things. They don't have that ability. They never built a boat or a ship to go out and catch whales. They just wait until they're fortunate enough and the whale beaches itself on the shore. And then they gut it and eat it and take its bones and build shelters. And that's what they did on the coast of Africa and other, other lands where savages had, had prevailed or savages had, had inhabited, I should say. Well, they'd wait for these big fish to beach themselves on the shore. And, you know, when whites see a whale beach itself, the first thing the white man thinks of is turning the whale around and pushing it back out to sea because he doesn't want to see it die. But these savages, when a whale beaches itself, it's a bounty for them. They eat it and they use its bones and build little shelters with them. And these shelters you could see in Alaska today on the coast of Alaska. The ancient Greeks I could just picture about. them, you know, eating and goring on it with their bare hands. I imagine that's how they ate it. Didn't even cook it. Right. I mean, they used pieces of, of shell or, or 
splintery rock they'd break off so that they could make use that to cut flesh with and and just eat it in chunks right off the right off the beach they didn't even have a barbecue so this ability that this um ability to to irrigate deserts that this <clears throat> leads to an, another line of prophecy, and, and that's the fact that um, some of these tribes were, were prophesied to be husbandmen. And, and I'll read um, a prophecy to Issachar, and it's, I'm going to read the Septuagint version because I think it's a better rendering of the Hebrew. I don't like the King James translation. Issachar has desired that which is good, resting between the inheritances. And he saw that, and having seen the resting place that it was good, and the land that it was fertile, he subjected his shoulder to labor and became a husbandman. So that's one tribe of Israel that, would, that was prophesied to become husbandmen. That there's a recurring theme in the prophets, where the children of Israel were told that they would build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Who has had vineyards all throughout history? The history of wine and grapes in Japan and China is fragmented and inconsistent, and for the most part began only with the arrival of Jesuit priests from Europe. Vineyards in Africa where do we see a, a black African native with a vineyard? They're limited to European colonists of the South and the once white Arabs of the far Northwest. Algeria is, is noted for some vineyards, right? And South Africa, and that's about it. Only whites have historically cultivated grapes for wine in a constant and consistent manner. And since the dawn of colonization, whites have cultivated vineyards in northern and southern Africa, throughout the Mediterranean, in France, in Germany, but also in New York, in California, even in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. They would bring grapes from France or seeds from France to plant all over California or all over Australia and develop vineyards and... and Make wine. Who else does this? Who else bottles wine? That the other races had never done this until they came into contact with whites. But that leads us to something else. And you would mention living off of cows. And the Scythians were mocked by the Greeks even for living entirely off their herds. They ate cheese, they drank milk, and, and sometimes they'd cook up a, cook up a bowl and, and eat the flesh. But they lived off their herds. That's all they had. They didn't have agriculture. They were newly introduced. They were Israelites in the captivity who had escaped into the north through the Caucasus Mountains and around the Black Sea, who fled into Europe to get away from those nations of Mesopotamia where they were captive and they had nothing to live on but herds. They had no time to redevelop 
the tools to cultivate land. And they were living off the herds and they were always on the move anyway for many centuries until they finally settled down in Western Europe and began to once again cultivate land, which takes centuries of, to, to, to develop it fully. It takes at least decades of peaceful habitation of one area in order to develop cultivate the tools you need to cultivate the land properly. So that can't be done overnight. And in the meantime, you have to live off your flocks, which is exactly what they did. So who could live off their flocks? The ancient Israelites were primarily shepherds, and they drank milk. The Egyptians wanted nothing to do with shepherds. And we read in Genesis chapter 46 that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So the Israelites were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, which was mentioned on several occasions. The consumption of milk, cheese, and butter is mentioned in dozens of verses in Scripture. Today, in the white nations of Northwest Europe, lactose intolerance affects less than 10% of the population. But in the non-white world, up to 90% of the population is lactose intolerant. They can't live on milk and honey. Now, some figures have their general degree of lactose intolerance at 65%. And that may be true for some regions, but for most, it is much higher. But where it is true, there's a greater percentage of white blood. None of these non-white people would have cared for a land flowing with milk, even if they might find some purpose for honey. How could you care for a land flowing with milk if you're lactose intolerant? The ancient yeah, Assyrian... And, um, Go on. So I was just going to say you can only drink milk if you have the enzymes in your stomach, right? That was how the Adamic man was created. Yahweh put them in our stomach knowing that he created this cattle for us and we would be able to drink the milk. So, so how does that work? The only way is that the Israelites would have to be white if they could drink the milk. Uh, and obviously we understand that the other races are hybrids, right? Fallen angels uh, mixed in with animals. And that's why they don't have those enzymes in their stomach. God, Yahweh didn't put them there. Well, well right. Absolutely. That the, um, the the ancient Assyrians and Babylonians they also consumed milk. It's it's in their ancient in inscriptions. But according to one source, the American Family Physician website, today at least seventy percent of Jews and eighty percent of Arabs in the Middle East are lactose intolerant. Eighty percent of African blacks. And 100% of Asians and American Indians are lactose intolerant. We must add that Arabs and Jews who are not lactose intolerant typically have some degree of European descent as most Arab or of blood related to European descent, of white descent as most Arabs and Jews do, or else they wouldn't be Arabs or Jews, right? That they descended from whites in part so that's why a larger percentage of them are not 
lactose intolerant. Maybe 20 to 30% are not lactose intolerant because they have some white blood in them. And the ones with white blood who are able to produce that enzyme wouldn't be lactose intolerant. So there you have it. How could the Jews and the Arabs be the descendants of the Hebrews who drank milk in abundance, or, or even the Assyrians and Babylonians who consumed milk? How could that be? They're definitely not their descendants. They're bastards. They're mixed-race brown bastards. Yeah, and um, the free patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all farmers. Uh, especially Jacob, you know, he uh, did the, the farm and the cattle for Laban. But, I mean, did he not live off the milk? And did he, once he left and with his 12 sons and formed his own farm, would they not be living off milk? They would have to be white people, right? Right, absolutely. When Abraham was called to the land of Canaan, it, it speaks, and we spoke about this last week, it speaks about the, the great amount of cattle that he had. So moving his family, he didn't go alone. He went with a considerable number of people. In fact, he went with at least six or eight hundred people because he had 300 men fighting with him from his own house against the kings of Canaan, as it's recorded, I believe, in perhaps Genesis chapter 14. So if he had 300 men fighting with him, he had to have more than double that number in his house. And he had considerable cattle. And they all moved to the land of Canaan with him. And they, they couldn't be farmers overnight. They didn't even have a land of their own. That They had to scratch out an existence in the land of Canaan. And they must have been living off their flocks. So they must have been drinking milk. What would be the point of going to a land flowing with milk and honey if you didn't drink the milk? Arabs and Jews... And African blacks and, and American Indians, none of these Chinamen, 100% of Asians are lactose intolerant. <laughs> none of these people could be the heirs of our Bibles. None of them. In the blessings of Moses, in and, and that also, I, I want to say one more time, that, that also helps to prove that the original populations of the Middle and Near East, since they were not lactose intolerant, that helps to prove that the demographics, demographics of the region did indeed change from ancient times, that the people living there now aren't the people who lived there centuries ago. In the blessings of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, there is a long passage concerning Joseph, which says in part, and of Joseph he said, Blessed of Yahweh be his land for the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep that couches beneath the underground aquifers, and for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon, and for the precious things of the earth and the fullness thereof. And this was not necessarily fulfilled in Palestine. As we next read in verse 17, his glory. 
is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. And, and that's an unfortunate translation, that word unicorn. With them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So Moses is blessing the children of Ephraim with the intent that they're going to enter the land of Canaan, but he, he's indicating that they're not going to stop at the land of Canaan, that the horns of Joseph are going to push his people to the ends of the earth. So they're going to inhabit the earth. Even if you interpret that as land, it's far beyond Canaan, which wasn't very large at all. Yeah, and um, it's a whole other topic, but some would say that that's indicating the British Empire and the colonization of the entire world, right? That Ephraim would and Manasseh would push all the other children of Israel everywhere, you know, like uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, you know, all the Americas, Canada, etc. Well, well, that does seem to fulfill this prophecy, and, and I would have to agree with that. I would have to agree with that. That does, that does it, it was those um, Anglo-Saxon tribes of the scattered Israelites who had, even though the Portuguese and the Spaniards, and, and back in those days they were white Portuguese and white Spaniards, had indeed sent out many colonies, none of them were as successful as, as the English ultimately were. And the French tried, and the Dutch, but none of them were as, as successful as the English. And, and I don't see those, um, I don't see the tribes in European nations today, any European nation as representing any particular tribe. It's wrong to perceive that. So it, it's, I'm certain that there are elements of all 12 of the tribes of Israel in every European nation or in each European nation. There, there are some Saxons that live in France, Angles that live in what we call France today. It wasn't always France, right? So, some, there are many Angles and Saxons in Germany. There's probably many of the other tribes in, in England and America, especially America. So I don't see the lines as being that clear, but the prophecy can indeed, the, the prophecies that Ephraim and Manasseh can, will be a great nation and a company of nations. And, and nobody, is, no, nobody has become a company of nations more significantly than, than the English, that, that must be admitted. And I would understand that that was a fulfillment of that prophecy. So that, that's two prophecies, the blessings of Jacob and the blessings of Moses, which on Ephraim and Manasseh that, that certainly do seem to have been fulfilled in the spread of the Anglo-Saxon peoples. That I would have to admit. I think British Israel takes it a little too far, but that much is evident. Yeah, and uh, none of these other non-white races have, you know, ever done this, like colonized the whole world and 
you know, pushed other races to all all corners of the globe or playing whatever. So, you know, it can only be us, the white Europeans, right? Well, well, absolutely, without a doubt. And and none of them can even drink milk. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing that that proves the, the the racial assertions concerning the Middle East and Palestine and Mesopotamia more than the fact that they were not lactose intolerant. I'm sorry, I got to keep. And every time I think about that one, I'm like, why don't people plainly see this? It's so plain. It's so evident. Okay. The non-whites have always, all they do, wherever blacks go, they create Africa. They descend, they don't go anywhere. That Wherever blacks are taken, I should say, they create Africa. Look at Detroit. Look at Chicago. They're like mini Congos. They're just savage wastelands now after 50 years of majority black habitation. That they're destroyed. Non-whites without whites rapidly decline into savagery and poverty. That this is the we, we could see this in modern history until the 1990s, until the end of the 1990s, sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, when it was run by whites, when whites owned all the farms. As a whole, it was a net exporter of food. And it imported very little food, comparatively. When Mugabe took the farms from white Zimbabweans, Zimbabwe, which was formerly Rhodesia, went almost immediately from being an exporter of food to an importer to, to basically apply for food welfare from the United Nations in a very short time. It needed food aid, and it needed to import food. When whites had the farm, it always made extra food and exported food. Now, the South African economy has also been handed over to blacks, and the volume of South African food exports has been erratic, while demands for imports has increased. If all the whites leave, the blacks will just starve to death. Right now, by some figures, Sub-Saharan Africa, which is 13% of the world's population, has a share less than 3% of global food exports, and its imports exceed exports by $7 billion. Now, other, other sources put the net food exports even higher. But this is one of the most fertile regions of the world. They should never be compelled to import food. And now they cannot even make enough food to feed themselves. In a study conducted by, and I'm going to link it with my notes, in a study conducted by one multinational agricultural products company, AgBiz, the regions with the most food security are North America, Western Europe, Australia, Argentina, and, for some reason, Japan and South Korea. But as a whole, since 1965, Africa, Asia, 
the Middle and Near East and Central America have all consistently imported much more food than they export. Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union only became a net exporter of food over the past 15 years. But even this is with much white expertise in food production and food preservation technology. Without the white expertise that they've received in food production and preservation technology, even South America and Asia and the Middle and Near East, India, Central America, would be starving to death. The populations of all these regions would be significantly smaller without Western intervention. South America is a net food exporter, the rest of South America, aside from Argentina. However, its industries were purposely developed by Western investors for service to North America and Europe, cocoa and coffee and, and sugar and, and bananas and things like that. Everything that South America exports are things that North Americans and Europeans crave, but can't grow at home. So that's the only reason why South America is a net food exporter. Yeah, and as we said earlier, it's all Jews who went out there and build up, you know, all these farms and industries just so they can get super rich, right, by draining us of our money as they uh, use them as slave labor out there and essentially take all our wealth by selling uh, all these goods we really don't need to us. Right, absolutely. I, I mean, one of the reasons for mass immigration of Mexicans into the United States in recent decades is the fact that these Mexicans were mostly subsistence farmers in central and northern Mexico. And being subsistence farmers, they didn't create food for export. They didn't create extra food, but they were able to scratch out a living on their own land. So they were all pushed off their farms. And the Mexican, Mexican government allowed these international agricultural corporations to take all their land so that they could commercialize it. And, and profit from it. And it, it basically caused a wave of migration in, into the Southwest United States. And now we have Mexicans everywhere because they all lost their, their old family. I don't want to call them farms. I don't, I don't think most of them actually functioned as farms in, in the sense that we Westerners perceive a farm, but they had their own plots of land and, and they basically made their own living off it and were able to feed themselves. Well, well that now that's all been taken over by agribusiness so that the Mexicans can make money selling tomatoes to New Yorkers. That, that's basically the bottom line. Um, I just had um, one really quick quote from um, a guy who just described China. And this was a book ways that are dark the truth about china and it was written by ralph townsend and it was in 1933 so this is about a hundred years ago um it is a really big book it's like 365 pages 
But I managed to find a little quote where he kind of summed up the China and the Chinese. So I'll just quickly read it. A people who show surprisingly sensitivity of feeling and at the same time abhor us with their seemingly crudity of instinct, accomplished in craftsmanship, yet living ever in houses falling to pieces, alert in business, yet unable to make a success of large business themselves, quoting proverbs about truth in every breath and not to be believed in anything, always exasperating us and then mollifying our expiration with a talent of their own, always busy and never getting anything done. 400 million of them upon a background of green paddies seen through slow rain, swirling yellow rivers with bobbling junk and rattan cells above and through all the smell of damp moldiness amid spice cooking. That is China and the Chinese. So this was a hundred years ago, basically saying that they all always talk about how great China is, but it essentially is just a hellhole, and he saw it firsthand, right? And I think uh, you heard of this book as well, right, Bill? Absolutely, and and it is a hellhole. Even you know they had a recent Olympics there. I forget exactly when, four years ago, eight years ago, twelve years ago, but when they had the Olympics there, they had to actually clear the city of traffic and hope that some of the smog went away because the city is crowned with a layer of smog that even London, Pittsburgh, and, and New York City never had. It's so thick. You can't even breathe, but to the Chinese, it's normal. The reason why industry has fled to China, and, and the reason why it fled to Korea before that, and Japan before that, and, and now it's fleeing to Vietnam and places like that, the reason why the industry is brought to these places is not necessarily only for cheap, cheap labor, but also because there are no pollution controls. There's no EPA. There's no labor controls. There's no safety controls. So, so, so there's no um, National Labor Board. There's no OSHA. That there's the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that governs um, employee safety here in America. They don't have all these agencies and all this red tape in China, in Vietnam, in Korea. They didn't have it in Japan when they started there. It, it's that they are free from all of that. They are free from litigation. When a worker falls under a machine in China and gets crushed to death, he, he's just written off. Oh, well, so sorry. And he's gone. And who gives a shit? Nobody cares. That's the way they treat each other in the streets. When they run each other over with cars, they just keep going. Nobody cares. And, and there's all sorts of proof of that in, in modern social media. There's videos all over the place about Chinese getting run over by cars, get, getting slammed by train. Nobody cares. They just keep going about their business. And, and sooner or later, somebody will pull the cadaver out of the way, out of the road. They don't care. Even when it's children, they don't care. That, that's how they live. That's how they live everywhere. I saw that attitude in, in New York in the 70s and 80s. In, in Chinatown, that's how they are. And, and like you said, they're always busy and they never get anything done or, or anything truly civilizing, accomplished. They only live for the moment. 
So that, that's why the industry is there, because they don't have those pollution controls and employee safety and, and health controls that are so costly in America. It, they're so costly to business. So they don't care about their employees. And, and they don't care about their environment. They'll pollute it until it can't be polluted anymore. They don't care. They're like roaches. That's how they live. And, and that's probably too long about the digression. We, we should probably um, move on to the fact that the children of Israel were to be a maritime people to a great degree. And, and one of the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 is that thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. So we read in Judges chapter 5, in the song of Deborah, when the rest of the Israelites were making war against the Canaanites, she sort of complains and says, why did Dan remain in ships? The, this time period here is probably about 1300, 1350 BC. Why did Dan remain in ships? Asher the tribe of Asher, continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Where Dan was blessed by Jacob in Genesis chapter 49, it said in part, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. And when you put this together, that seems to be an indication that Dan would engage in piracy, which the later tribe certainly did engage in at sea. And pertaining to Asher, that word for breaches on the seashore means havens or ports where it speaks of the coast. The seashore of Asher became famous from that time, but the Greeks called it Phoenicia. According to the Septuagint in Joshua chapter 19, when the tribes are allotted their territory, the tribe of Naphtali inhabited Tyre and the other cities of the Tyrians. And other witnesses established that the Phoenicians certainly were of Israel. The Phoenicians were, the ancient Phoenicians were Israelites. Now, the Phoenicians of the time of Christ were a different story because all the Israelites had been removed and many of them were Canaanites. But speaking of piracy, Jacob's blessing for Benjamin in Genesis chapter 49 reads, Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey and at night he shall divide the spoil. So evidently, Benjamin was to engage in privacy, war, and plunder, which would often also necessitate taking to the seas because they were the routes of commerce. In the blessings of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, we read, And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full with the blessing of Yahweh, possess thou the west and the south, that not, Now, when you look at Naphtali's territory in Palestine, it was in the north of the land that the 12 tribes were allotted to inhabit 
in the book of Joshua. It wasn't in the west or the south. But Moses said that Naphtali was going to possess the west and the south. And this is precisely what Naphtali did. Because the Tyrians, the city, the children of Naphtali, inherited the strong cities of the Tyrians, a line that's conveniently left out of the Masoretic text, which the King James Version is based on. The Tyrians later did accomplish that. They inhabited the west and the south. Then in the next verse we read, and of Asher he said, let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren and let him dip his foot in oil. And that may have to do with the extensive maritime trade in vegetable oils and indicate that Asher would be rich in them. When Jacob blessed Asher in Genesis chapter 49, he said, out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. For many centuries up to Roman times, the Phoenician children of Israel controlled the shipping across the Mediterranean. Eventually, they settled throughout Western Europe in large numbers. That's why Spain was called Iberia in ancient times. During this period, Greek and Roman shipping could not venture by sea into the western Mediterranean. It was controlled by Naphtali. According to Moses, thou shalt possess the west and the south. As the sailors would be taken if Roman and Greek shipping ventured into the western Mediterranean, the sailors would be taken and enslaved, and their ships and their cargo would be seized. The Greeks and Romans couldn't go there. They couldn't really go safely beyond. They finally established Marseille in the 7th century BC. Marseille started out as Massilia, which was a Phocian Greek settlement. The Phocians were a branch of the Ionian Greeks, but they couldn't go beyond that. And it took them centuries to get that far, that they had to establish a presence in Sicily and try to maintain that because they were always fighting with the Phoenicians over that. It was not until after the victory in the Punic Wars of the 3rd and 2nd centuries before Christ that the Mediterranean was open to the Romans. In recent times, the Portuguese, Spanish, French, and British had turns dominating the seas, and the British Empire was built on that dominance. Today, since the Second World War, the American Empire has been dominant. No non-white nation in historic times has ever had dominance of the oceans. The Chinese are trying to build a navy today, but it is exclusively with Western technology. The Japanese tried 100 years ago, but that was also with Western technology. It was the British and Americans that industrialized Japan in the 19th century. And if you look at all of its major early corporations, Nippon, Telephone and Telegraph. That was a direct offshoot of American Telephone and Telegraph. Japan Victor Corp. was a direct offshoot of RCA Victor. If it were not for white ingenuity, neither of those nations would have any such technology. But when has an African or an Indian ever built a single ship 
even with the availability of white technology. When has that happened? The ancient Israelites had the wheel, but the Africans never had a ship or a wheel and had never conceived the thought of leaving their own continent until they were sold off by their own chieftains as slaves and had no choice. Aside from Dan and Asher, where Jacob had blessed the sons of Leah, his first wife, she had six sons, he said the following of Zebulun and Issachar. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Sidon. Issachar is a strong ass couching between two burdens, and I've read the Septuagint version. This is the King James version, which I don't think it's a good translation in verse 15, which is, and he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant unto tribute. So Zebulun would father a maritime race, but looking at the inheritance of Zebulun in Palestine, it is completely landlocked. Now, some dishonest Bible maps have the land of Zebulun bordering a part of the Sea of Kinneroth or Galilee on the east. But that is not true. All of the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee belonged to the tribe of Naphtali as the dividing of the land in Joshua chapter 19 ascertains. The territory of Asher stood between Zebulun and the Mediterranean Sea. So it says that Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. It couldn't have been in Palestine because Zebulun was entirely landlocked in Palestine. Furthermore, the Septuagint says of Issachar, the Septuagint version, as I've read, that he would become a husbandman, indicating that he would father a race of farmers and ranchers. That's what husbandry is. Now, that does not mean that sailors and husbandmen would come only from these tribes, but that they would be notable among these tribes. But the blessing of Moses indicated that both tribes would be a maritime people. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in thy going out, and Issachar in thy tents. They shall call the people unto the mountain. There shall they offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hid in the sand. Examining the division of the land in Joshua chapter 19, <laughs> Issachar was also mostly landlocked, except that its eastern border was the River Jordan. So they must have sucked the abundance of the seas in other places. Yeah, and that must have been Europe, right? And uh, future civilizations and countries. Well, well, absolutely. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 13, it, it speaks about Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish. And even though other tribes and, and that the Ishmaelites and, of course, the Edomites were always in on, on trade, it's talking about Tyre 
and it's talking about the merchants of Tarshish in, in, that, in that context. And it also mentions Dan and Javan going to and fro in, in thy fairs in, in that same chapter. So what we have is a depiction of the tribe of Dan and the Ionian Greeks and, and all the ships, the merchants of Tarshish involved in maritime trade with the Tyrians. Tyre was on the coast of Phoenicia. Phoenicia was fully inhabited by the Israelite tribe of Asher and in part by the tribe of Naphtali, who, which inherited the cities of the Tyrians, according to the Septuagint version of Scripture. So the yeah, Israelites... Yeah, early Greece would have yes. been um, Ionian, you know, Athens and that, and the tribe of Dan, right, the Danoi. And then later on, the Phoenicians started to dominate. So, so it fulfills what you said with those uh, prophecies. Exactly. And, and again, we see Tashish mentioned in, in um, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 9. Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tashish first, to bring thy sons from afar, the silver and their gold with them under the name of Yahweh thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified thee, which shows that the children of Israel were the ones engaged in that maritime trade as so-called Phoenicians. But Phoenician was a Greek name, and, and it applied to the people on, on the coast of Asher that had been engaged in, in the collection of mollusks, mollusks, certain mollusks, that produced this fluid that was used to make this purple dye. And the, the word Phoenician, it comes from the Greek word Foinus, which means blood red or purple. And this dye came from these mollusks, and, and the Phoenicians cultivated that industry. Just like today, we have indigo and blue jeans, but the Jews in the Caribbean cultivated that industry. So that, I believe, covers the um, husbandry and, and maritime aspects and, and proves that the Israelites were white, just the fact that they weren't lactose intolerant. Right, and then after that, the Romans, as you said, started to dominate, uh, you know, the whole of the Mediterranean, the white world. And then after the fall of Rome, it was the European nations that dominated with their armadas. Um, you know, Britain actually came quite late where it really took off. But you had the Spanish Empire, yet the Franks, you, you know, the French, um, the Nordic countries had vast fleets. Um, you know, and over time, each white nation has had their heyday. And eventually it was Britain and now it's America. And we're all gradually going down with this world jury now. Well, well, exactly. And that's related to a whole different set of prophecies that we will probably get to, I, I, I think that's your point number 20, right? But right now we're only up to point 18. Yep. 
That now the the next point that you have in your hundred points, point eighteen, I believe it is. Every important person in early Christian history was white. Every early church father was a European. Yeah, I mean, um, if it really was intended for everyone, and you know, it wasn't exclusively for Israel and Europeans, you'd expect Christianity in every country, right? Every race. There'd be a whole different bunch, but but it's clearly only white Europeans where you see Christianity and these early people all throughout history to this day. Every time I do a Google search for Tertullian, Google produces this crude drawing of this nigger and puts it right alongside and puts it first prominently right alongside all of the traditional renderings of what Tertullian may have looked like that we know from, from as early as the late Middle Ages. They put this nigger, this recent drawing of a nigger right next to him as if to suggest that Tertullian, because he was from Roman Cottage, may have been black. He must have been a Moor because he was from Africa. That's not true at all. But I'm going to run down this list of, of early Christian fathers. Justin Martyr, who was one of the one of the first notable of the early so-called church fathers? Justin Martyr was from Samaria and learned his Christianity from Judeans at Jerusalem. Evidently, um, descendants of the Judeans practicing Christianity, who came from the converts of of the apostles at Jerusalem under James, a hundred years after James appears Justin Martyr in Samaria. Clement of Rome is the earliest of these so-called church fathers who have left us any writing at all. He didn't leave us much writing, but we have writing from him, Clement of Rome. He was a Roman and, and wrote in the late first century. The next significant early church father is Irenaeus. He was from Gaul. He, he was... Um, the Bishop of Lugdunum, which is the modern Lyons in, in France. Then we have Tertullian in the middle of the third century, and he was from Roman Carthage. Tertullian was born and raised in Carthage. He, had a, he was a Roman with a full and proper Roman name. His name was Quintus Septimius Florens. Tertullianus. And according to Jerome, Tertullian's father was a Roman soldier who held the position of centurio proconsularis, which was a pretty high centurion in the Roman army. And Tertullian said for himself that he was a trained lawyer and a priest, by which he must have meant a Roman pagan priest. There is no way that Tertullian was a black African. It's absolutely not possible with this sort of background. It didn't happen in the third century. Clement of Alexandria. Now, some accounts say that he was born in Athens, but he had his entire ecclesiastical career in Alexandria. Alexandria was a Greek city. It was founded and built and inhabited 
from the time of Alexander the Great, from which it has its name. But it also had a Judean quarter. There were always a number of Judeans inhabiting Alexandria. Alexandria was on the northern coast of Egypt by the Mediterranean Sea. And it was famed for its lighthouse, as well as its library, and as well as being a center of Greek culture and learning, which at the time, at the time of Christ, was second only to Athens. The fate of its famous library is not certain, but the city was plundered and destroyed by Arabs in 641 AD. Next is Eusebius of Caesarea. And, and he was also called Eusebius Pamphili. He was most likely born in Caesarea Maritima, where he had his entire ecclesiastical career. Next is Jerome, the next significant church father in, in this brief list that I'm giving. Jerome was an Illyrian. Now, he studied in Alexandria, and that's where he did his famed translation of the Vulgate, that became the Latin Vulgate, translation of Greek and Hebrew scriptures into Latin. Jerome was an Illyrian. He was born on the borders of Dalmatia and Pannonia, which I think in more modern times would be in Hungary or Austria. I forget precisely where, but this is, this is Central Europe. It's not... Anyone, anything but white and European. All of these ancient church fathers were nothing but white and European. Why? Yeah, and they try and try and do the same with everyone else, like Queen Dido. They try and make out that she was an Arab or a nigger. Um, Hannibal, you know, who invaded Rome, he, he was uh, from Carthage. They try and claim he was black. Um, j just about everyone, they would rewrite it. Even if you show them a picture or an actual statue, they, they don't care. They'll just lie about it. They absolutely don't care. Well, well right. And, and it's simply, they get away with this because we are so ignorant of history. And, and okay, Phoenicians had settled not only in Carthage, but in Greece. And one of the notable settlements of the, of the Phoenicians in Greece was a city named Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S. And Thebes actually, after the Athenians and Spartans had been warring against one another for a hundred years, the Thebans actually rose, had defeated the, I believe the Spartans about 380 BC, perhaps, and, and had rose to the primacy of Greece for a short time in, in the fourth century BC. Oh, so it was Israelites who defeated the Spartans, not the Athenians? I believe it was, yeah, the Thebans. Well, well, the Athenians and the Spartans had been beating the hell out of each other for a long, long time. And the Thebans had, had won a surprise victory and had actually rose to the primacy of Greece for a short time until that they um, they lost it and, and nobody really dominated Greece again until the coming of Philip of Macedon and the Macedonians. So is Thebes from Phoenicia? The, the name, is it just short? Would, would it, could it be spelled P-H, but it just happens to be called uh, spelled T-H instead? 
like Phoebes? Now, I don't think that there's an etymological connection to Phoenician and Thebes, but there is a Thebes in Egypt, so there might be a connection there for certain. Okay. I, I never really investigated the origin of the name Thebes for the Egyptian city. In any event, the Thebans, who were identified as Phoenicians were described as blonde and fair. The Greek tragic poets, Aeschylus and Euripides, both wrote about events from the early history of Thebes, revolving around the famous Oedipus and wars that other Greeks had against Thebes. And, and one of the titles of one of their plays was Seven Against Thebes, and that was written by Aeschylus, and another one, recounting basically the same events, was treated by Euripides and titled Phoenician Women. And these ancient tragic poets of the Greeks described the Phoenicians as being fair and blonde. When Virgil, in the first century BC, wrote the Aeneid, he described Dido, the founder and queen of Carthage, as being fair and blonde, or beautiful and blonde. I forget the exact phrase. So this is how 5th century BC Greeks and one particular 1st century BC Roman described or pictured the Phoenicians. The modern innovations describing Phoenicians as black Africans are just that they should just be treated with contempt. They're ridiculous. All of these early church fathers were white Europeans or white Middle Easterners. If, if I had to call Syria Middle Eastern. The Crusades. While based in part on Roman Catholic superstitions, all throughout early Christian history, and, and there's a lot of literature supporting this, pilgrimages to the Holy Land were quite popular among European Christians. There are many surviving records. But after the Muslim conquests of the seventh century, the pilgrimages became difficult and were often very dangerous. But during the time of Arab rule, political intervention was often effective and concessions were made to Christians. So the pilgrimages remained possible and were sometimes made frequently. One famous pilgrim of the era was the ninth century French monk who is known today as Bernard the Pilgrim. And you can find his story right in Wikipedia. And we know of him from the travel diary he recorded, which survives to this day. And I think Bernard, Bernard's pilgrimage took like eight years to complete. 
And those sorts of pilgrimages were also popular among the Saxon nobility and later the Norman nobility of England. But even some commoners and lower clergy were able to make the journey to Jerusalem. And very often it took seven or eight years to complete, to get from England through the Mediterranean to Jerusalem and, and to get back took that long to complete. In the 7th century AD, the Turks started to appear in Europe. The Turkic Bulgars invaded Europe and came to control Scythia Minor, which is more or less equivalent with modern-day Romania. And the Turkic Bulgars actually joined themselves to Slavic tribes in the area, and they were eventually amalgamated and began making war with the Byzantine Empire. Early in the ninth century, further unrest in Central Asia between various tribes of Khazars and the Magyars and other Turks forced the Magyars to flee west, where they got as far as Hungary, and the Pechenegh Turks to the Crimea and around the Black Sea. Now, they had both the Kievan Rus and the Byzantines for enemies. By this time, many Turks were also joining Arab armies to the south. The Arabs were also, at this time, already introducing sub-Saharan African blacks into their armies as slaves and then later as soldiers. That's when Arabia began to turn dark. In the ninth century, a Turkic general in the Arab armies had founded the Tulanid dynasty in Egypt and Syria, which was short-lived, but which was an early and significant indication that Turks were becoming powerful and influential in Arab lands. In the 10th century, other large Turkish states were emerging in Iran, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and points further west. At the same time, Turkish kings were beginning to embrace Islam. Even Jews as far away as Arab-controlled Spain, because Spain was most of Spain was under Arab control at this time, Jews were apparently corresponding with and influencing certain Turkic kings. Ultimately, all of the Arab lands came under Turkish control, and by the 11th century, by the beginning of the 11th century, Turks were migrating into Anatolia in large numbers. By the end of the 11th century, it became impossible for Europeans to conduct their pilgrimages to the Holy Land while it was under Turkic rule. Where did African blacks conduct pilgrimages to the Holy Land? Where did Chinamen conduct pilgrimages to the... Nobody cared about the Holy Land as a holy land, but Christians, only Christians. Jews took advantage of that, but only Christians cared about Jerusalem and the so-called Holy Land as a holy land. So this fact that Christians could, white Christians could no longer make these pilgrimages 
led Pope Urban II to declare in 1095 that an accursed race has violently invaded the lands of the Christians. They have destroyed the churches of God or taken them for their own religion, turning them into mosques. Jerusalem is now held captive by the enemies of Christ, subject to those who do not know God, the worship of the heathen. And with those words, at the Council of Clermont in 1095, the First Crusade was launched against the Muslims. The Crusades are usually numbered at eight, taking place from the time of that proclamation through 1270 A.D., but as far as I'm concerned, that's a misrepresentation of history. Because the Crusades, they were not offensive wars. They've been characterized in white European and American Christian schools and public schools as offensive wars. They've been characterized that way since before I went to, to grade school. We, we were taught that the Crusaders were the aggressors. That's not true. The Crusades were defensive wars. And historians have been lying about their character for years. They're not numbered at eight. The, the usual spin is that there were eight Crusades which took place from 1095 to 1270 AD. But there were actually more Crusades. Through the end of the 17th century, the Venetian Wars, the Battle of Lepanto in Greece in 1571, the struggles between the Hungarians and the Poles against the Turks all throughout the 15th and 16th centuries. Martin Luther wrote about the Poles and, and their fights, their, their wars that they were waging against the Turks in the 16th century. The Siege of Vienna by the Turks in 1683 all of these should be counted as crusades, and they were all defensive wars. Because all of the crusades were defensive wars to take back, to defend Christendom, as the, the, the Austrians were doing at Vienna when they were under siege, as the Poles and Lithuanians had done, as the Hungarians and, and the Serbs had done. They were defending Christendom, from being overrun by the Turks and trying to take back formerly Christian lands in the East that the Turks had invaded and taken for themselves on the heels of the Arabs. The Crusades were all defensive, trying to take back what Christendoms are as Christian lands. The sad part is that the popes didn't always have the best intentions and the princes of, princes of Europe didn't, or usually, didn't care. And the Germans and, and, and the Franks, they weren't rushing to the defense of Hungary or Poland. They really weren't. I mean, some of them did at diverse times, but they really weren't. So, what, when um, in, in one crusade, the, the Normans, who were supposed to go to Jerusalem... In, instead, they sacked Byzantium. So a lot of times that they were just looking for pillage and, and taking part in the Crusades for their, to fill their own pockets. And, and that needs to be admitted. But for the most part, 
the Crusades were defensive wars against the Turks, who never stopped invading Europe, and they're still invading Europe, but we, we call them people now, and, and we stopped fighting against them. So now they just walk in and take what they want, because we're whores for the Jews. Yeah, we invite them in, right, and give them uh, free housing and, and all that, and we marry them and have kids with them, unfortunately. But but there's also another prophecy that um, Israel would be the battle axe of Yahweh, that we would fight for him. And, you know, these crusades partly feel that, where we stood up and we defended Christianity and we tried to keep it, right? And uh, none of the other races have ever fought for Christianity, for, for you know, for Christ ever in history, right? Well, well, right, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I never saw another nation actually fight a war to win anything for Christ or for Christianity to make a section of the earth a Christian section or area and, and put it under the rule of Christian law. No, that's never. Only whites have done that, ever. Only whites have ever fought in the name of Christ to establish the rule of Christian law anywhere. Yeah, so who's the battle axe of Yahweh? Which race, right? It's very clear. Well, well, it, it's a... To have to produce these 100 proofs and to have to explain all of this to people in, in modern times is incredible that, that people should know all this. They should take these truths for granted because these are basic historical truths. That These things aren't secret, but it's taught to nobody because the churches have abdicated their Christian responsibility for centuries now. The, the popes, and, and that leads to, to our next, the, the balance of this 18th proof, the popes have become so corrupt by the 15th century that they were oppressing the German people, and, and they were just using Germany to, to as a tax farm to squeeze all the gold out of the German people that they could. And that sparked the Reformation. And all of the reformers, of course, were white. The Jesuits, the, the Jesuits were working with fervor in the 15th and 16th centuries, mostly through the Spanish, the French, the Portuguese, those countries remained Catholic throughout the Reformation. The Jesuits were working with fervor, fervor to win Ethiopia and the rest of Africa for the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't care about race or the level of civilization. They were doing the same thing in the New World, in, in South America and the Caribbean. But in, in the 15th and 16th centuries, many of the churches in Ethiopia were actually built by Jesuits. However, that was an artificial and superficial Christianity, which has never been sustained at any high level without much further intervention and assistance from the West. As the Roman Catholic Church sought after international empire because it had, that the Europeans were, were just finished with it, many Europeans began to become aware of its theological treachery 
and fought to reform the church. And they failed. So they sought to leave it. That was the birth of the Reformation. Even though they left the church, they never left Christianity. And with a century of bloodshed and the destruction of half of Germany, as well as Christian Europeans in other countries, Christian Europe was, in large degree, freed from the tyranny of the popes. That was a great sacrifice on the, account, on, on the part of these people to free themselves from the tyranny of the popes, but they never turned their back on Christianity. They sought to reestablish biblical Christianity, even though they didn't do it perfectly. They never left Christianity. And all of these men were white. And there was no reformation in non-white lands. That is because they weren't even Christian and were never in need of any such reformation, not having been a part of the Christian church in the first place. The non-whites who were supposedly Christian by this time were only Christian by force of arms. The arms of the French, Spanish, and Portuguese, or Italians, or Greeks, under the so-called Catholic Church, or under the auspices of one of the Eastern Orthodox churches. Christendom was still white, and even Martin Luther attested in his treatise on the Jews and their lives that all the Gentiles, by his time, had accepted Christ. Who did he mean by that? He could have only been talking about white people writing that in 1543, he could only have been talking about white people, had freely accepted Christ without compulsion, as he wrote. So the entire Reformation was white. And after they revolted from the Roman Catholic Church, they remained Christian. They didn't revert to some ancient paganism, which is ridiculous. Yeah, wherever they went, they brought the book with them, right? The Bible. Uh, you know, as you said, uh, with some of the American colonies they were, or other ones, they were fr uh, fleeing the persecution or they were not unhappy on the tyranny of, um, you know, the Pope or the new Anglican churches. And they just wanted to have a Christian free society where there was no <laughs> tyranny over them. Like everything else, the Reformation had a good side and a bad side because the Protestants who wanted to break free of the, of, of the Catholic Church, they were in bed with the Jews who wanted to decimate the authority of the Pope in Europe. So there was an unholy alliance there. But they nevertheless, whites, after breaking from the Roman Catholic Church and its tyranny, whites remained Christian. And another coin with both a good side and a bad side was the fact that once whites broke from the Roman Catholic Church, they had much more intellectual freedom. And with that, we, we had a new age of invention. And we have greatly increased our technology. Now, there's a lot of bad points to intellectual freedom since we've had the introduction of humanism and the concepts of evolution, the Big Bang Theory, and all of that um, Jewish trash and, and speculation, which is 
a whole other story by itself. But ancient Phoenicians had clocks with moving gears. These had been pulled out of the bottom of the sea. The Romans had concrete. And the Roman method of making concrete is still unknown to this day. But the Romans made this concrete back in the first century BC that was just incredible and much more durable than modern concrete because many Roman concrete, Roman edifices still stand today and are still being used. 2,000 years later, aqueducts and things like that that the Romans had made are still in use. The Greeks had Greek fire, and, and the Greeks, Archimedes was an ancient Greek inventor. Um, Diodorus Siculus wrote about him at length. Archimedes, and Diodorus Siculus describes this, had actually made a large lens, glass lens, that could focus the rays of the sun and set fire to ships in the harbor. We had many marvelous inventions in the Roman and, and Greek periods, the Greco-Roman Phoenician period. We had many marvelous inventions. The Phoenicians didn't have clocks like we know a 24-hour clock. They, they had this machine with moving gears that evidently um, forecast the cycles of the seasons and things like that. It's still trying to be figured out by modern archaeologists. So after the Reformation, we basically had another explosion of invention and technology, which ultimately led to today and, and where we stand technologically today. So what other races done those things? And, and people might pull out these crazy Jew fables about the Chinese inventing this or that, or, or black Africans inventing this or that. But the truth is, they haven't invented a damn thing. And, and the only things they, they're able to do, they do with, with a thorough basis in technology that's already been developed by whites. Yeah, and it's just astonishing that all these things still are here, you know, in Rome and Greek, uh, all these like ancient temples and where they had their senates and all that, these amazing stone structures that are just phenomenal. And, um, you know, the Colosseums are there. They also had um, underground heating. Um, they had sewers. They had uh, canals. They had, um, you know, kind of, I don't know how to explain it, but where you have water built up in the air, kind of like a, this canal that it can transport the water all the way throughout the city. Uh, you know, now we're more advanced with underground piping and that, but they even had that right where, where you could uh, have water in your house just flowing through. It's, it's pretty amazing. Thousands of years ago, they had all this. Absolutely. And, and the Romans had a, a, a pretty good and pretty efficient sewerage system and public baths and public toilets and, and they actually had sponges on sticks to cleanse themselves after they used the bathroom and, and, and were able to rinse them out in, in fresh running water. And, and they did a lot of amazing things that, that are also evident even with the civilization of ancient Crete 2,000 years before Rome. 
So, and, and Crete is, of course, off the coast of the, the Greek parts of Anatolia. But, well, the ancient Israelites were also a technologically advanced society. The Greeks had talked about the Phoenicians and the arts and sciences that the Phoenicians had brought to the Greeks. The, and, and writing and things like that. If we examine the texts of the Old Testament, they were able to smelt iron and, and to, to make brass and gold and silver and form it in, into wonderful artworks. They were making, the Phoenicians were the first his, in history who had been proven to have manufactured glass. So we've always had that these periods where, where we could develop the sciences and technologies, and then war would come, or, or the world would be upset with invasions, and, and tribes would have to pick up and move, or were taken off into Assyrian captivity, or things like that. And, and when that happens, the advances in technology are set back and repressed for centuries until that they can arise again in another location and build another civilization. Those things take time. But we've always done that. Our race has always done that. These other races have never done that. Yeah, and as we were just talking about with um, niggers in Africa, you know, if they don't even have a language, how can they beat the Israelites if they can't even speak or write or have a wheel or domesticate cattle and you know as we were talking about china that they're, they're maybe a little bit more intelligent but they still can't build a civilization ever how can any of these people be israelites um i remember just recently in india they had to bring laws to force people not to shit in the streets right and the indians were arguing against it saying why but why can't i just go up to the river what's wrong with that you, you know it's not built into their culture that you know, you even have just a basic toilet or just dig a ditch and do it there. To them, why can't I just shit, you know, beside my house? What was the problem? That that all these societies are like that. And that, that's not how the Israelites were. Right. They all live like dogs. In in um in the siege of Assyria. 700 BC, that the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, 700 BC. Hezekiah it was preparing for that siege. He was able to conceal a spring and create an underground aqueduct to bring water up into Jerusalem, into the mountain. And they had a tunnel going down through the center of the mountain to meet that spring to raise water into the city. And, and this is 700 BC. That's how Jerusalem withstood the Assyrian siege. And it's in the scripture, and, and it's a fact of archaeological history. We know this because it's been all been discovered by archaeologists. And, and it's called Warren Shaft. If you look up Warren Shaft, Warren is the archaeologist who discovered the shaft, so it's credited to him. Warren Shaft, Hezekiah's Tunnel, look those things up. They were doing this in 700 B.C., raising water up, enough water up into a large city, a city that may have held up to 2 million people. Jerusalem 
what ancient Jerusalem was a notable city, they raised up enough water from that tunnel to keep the whole city watered during the Assyrian siege while the Assyrians were, were at the gates. <coughs> and sorry. then you have Solomon's temple. You know, if you read the scripture, how amazing it was and all the craftsmanship and all the gold. Uh, you know, it's described as this beautiful temple. And then you go into Greece and Rome and, you know, all these countries and you find similar structures. It's clearly, you know, the same people. And then all our modern churches and, uh, you know, parliaments and the White House, they're all built, you know, the same in these amazing structures and paintings and artwork, etc. It's clearly the same race, right? Well, well right. An ancient door on the coast of the land of Manasseh in, in ancient Israel when archaeologists dug it up, they found from layers that date to before the Assyrian captivities, before the 7th century BC, they found Corinthian architecture because the Corinthians were Dorians. They found Corinthian architecture in Palestine from dating to before the 7th century BC. That they've a lot of Amazing discoveries have been found. Amazing artifacts have been discovered and, and helped to establish that it, it's always been our race that has done these things. And, and wherever we go, it, if we have enough time to develop a civilization, it will develop wherever whites have gone. And... and if your entire world is destroyed, if you're stripped of everything and cast out into the wilderness, you're not going to lose your alphabet. You're not going to lose your language. That thought is absolutely ridiculous. Or the ability to wear clothes and stuff like that. It, it's not a mistake that all of the peoples of Europe used the same alphabet that the ancient Phoenicians and Hebrews had used. Even the Germanic runes are almost exactly similar to the Proto-Hebrew letters. Proto-Hebrew. I don't mean these new block Hebrew letters that started to be used in the second century BC because that's not real Hebrew. That's not real a real Hebrew alphabet. That's a contrived alphabet. The original Hebrew alphabet was the same alphabet that's known to us as Phoenician and Greek. Greek with some changes. And, and the Greek alphabet of, of antiquity is much more similar to the Phoenician Hebrew alphabet that, than it is than the modern Greek alphabet. So all, all of our tribes are using the same alphabet, and we all have words in our language. And, and this we've also proven in detail. We all have words in our language, whether we're Scandinavian or, or Roman or Greek or, or British or German. We have words in our language that are directly traceable to Hebrew words with the same meanings, even though our language had other influences such as Assyrian or Persian or, or Ionian.
we all have remnants of, of this Hebrew language in our modern languages. And we all use a Hebrew alphabet. So how, how is that? Yeah. And then like all modern technology, right? Like electricity, uh, mobile phones, uh, telecommunications, um, you know, you know, modern boats, airplanes, uh, computers, anything you can imagine. What, what race has invented these and what race reading Bible would you expect to have one day come up with all these inventions? The race of Israel who are blessed above all others or, or another race, right? It all fits. Absolutely. But now, in the end days, there are other prophecies which are being fulfilled, and, and this is going to result in the glorification of God. And, and that's summarized in Revelation chapter 20, where it says that Satan, and, and Satan is defined as the Jews who had denied Christ in our New Testament, Satan will gather all of the, the, the nations of the world against the camp of the saints. And, and once you understand that the camp of the saints, the camp of the Christian saints are the white European people, and that Satan will gather all nations against those people, and the same thing is described in Ezekiel chapter 38 and separately in Ezekiel chapter 39, and that's a parallelism, as the land of unwalled villages, which has much goods and, and cattle, will be invaded by all the other nations of the world and will be pillaged and plundered until all of the invaders are ultimately destroyed. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 20 and the scenario of the camp of the saints, that they will be plundered by all of these other nations that Satan gathered against them until God chooses to destroy them all. And, and that's so evident today. What other people have ever been invaded not just by one race, but by every other race, which is what Revelation chapter 20 describes. By every other race, right now, our white nations have been basically invaded. I don't care that we call it immigration. It doesn't matter that we call it legal. They are the devices by which Satan has been able to do this. And they're not natural. No other race has ever passed laws allowing people of any other race to just move in and do what they want and function as fellow citizens. That, to an ancient Roman or an ancient Greek, that would be assured destruction. They would have understood that as assured destruction. And we don't, because Satan has us all deceived. As Revelation chapter 20 says, that Satan would deceive the whole world deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth and bring them all to battle against the camp of the saints. That's what we're suffering right now, but we're too stupid to even know it. We're so naive. We've bought into this entire Jewish re-education of Christian society that's happened over the last 200 years with the dawn of humanism and, and egalitarianism in, in the Masonic lodges of Europe. 
And we've all been, we've all swallowed this poison so that we would allow ourselves to be invaded, not just by one nation, but by every other nation. Just as it says in Revelation 20. <laughs> How could that yes, be? Yes, across the board. It's not just like um, this this white nation, you know, like you look at France and think, oh, you've got a, a Muslim problem. But, you know, if you're in England, it's okay. It, it's not like that. Every single white nation, wherever you go, is exactly the same. And it's just getting worse and worse. It used to be uh, mostly the cities that if you moved out into the countryside, but even now you're not safe, right? They're purposely um, building, you know, housing in those areas and purposely flooding them with immigrants. It's very clear when you look at the prophecies, you can see that one race would conspire, you know, Satan and force this upon the children of Israel. You can clearly identify who's who, who's the good guys, who's the bad guys. And it's just crystal clear if you look at that from a non-biased view, right? Absolutely. And, and, and looking at just from Revelation chapter 20, from, from verses 7 through 10, you could teach Christian identity and, and look at the immigration problem that every white nation is suffering today and prove it. At no other time in history has any nation been, in, been invaded and replaced by every other nation, not just by one other nation or by a league of a couple of nations, but by every other race and nation. And, and in America or in England, we have people here taking advantage of the civilization that we built, the society that we created, and exploiting it for their own economic gain to our disadvantage and it's people from every other tribe and, and region of the world. It, it's not just Mexicans. It's Chinese. It's Indians. It's Pakistanis. It's Kazakhstanis. It's, it's everybody. It, it's every part of Africa. It's every part of South America. They're all here and engaging in economic war against us to take advantage for their own gain. But we don't see it that way because we're naive and miseducated. Yeah, and it, it all goes back to that Genesis, right, where the, the serpent beguiled Eve and uh, got her to eat of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. It's the same thing if you just understand that the... Um, the Jews are the continuation of the fallen angels, the serpent, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is all the other races. It's the exact same thing happening today, right? Yep, interracial fornication, which is what Paul won against, is the only sin is being against your own body because you destroy your own race when you commit it. And that's the sin of Genesis 3, and it's the sin of today, but on a much greater scale. Well, I think that rounds out our first 20 proofs of the fact that the Israelites were white. Yeah, absolutely. Thank and you for then, being um, here. Yeah, yeah, next week we can move on to, um, you know, 21 to 30, and we can get into all, like, the um, Greek civilizations and all, all the uh, stuff like that. Absolutely. I, I, I haven't seen the whole list yet, but I'll wait for Sunday and... <laughs> Praise Yahweh. Thank you for being here.
Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill, as always. Praise Yahweh, God of European people. Thank you. Good night.